This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics and from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Me too. And I'm Brian. <laughs> Hello, Brian. Hello, everybody. Hey, everyone. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the 1818 uh, book by Mary Shelley called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Um, yes. Although, is it really 1818? I, I don't know which version I read. That's the what there? There's another one that came out in 1831. She edited it. She edited it. She revised it. She added the prologue. Uh, 1831, and for a long time that was the edition people used. But uh, over the past 20 years, we've the consensus has been to go back to 1818. Why is that? Um, in part because there's some uh, discomfort about the prologue of 1831, which people used to take seriously, and now it seems kind of you know half made up. Was um, the prologue in letters? Why? No, it's it's where she explains how she came up with the story and the the night oh. of start and. Uh, but also that the 1818 one is uh, fresher, uh, more bold. It's, it's like with Leaves of Grass. You really want the original edition rather than what the author added on. I mean, there's there's a ton of different reasons you can dive into, but it's um, 1818 is usually the one we use now. Hmm. So no one told me that. So it's like skip. The, oh, I did. Skip, skip the introduction, but was there any body changes to the actual? Oh yeah. There's there's. I mean, the the plot is. Did you really just say are there any body changes? Are we going to be dealing with this the whole time? Just the heart of the book. That's right. If we're talking about the corpus, yeah. No, yeah. Oh, there's there's tons of cha- there's there's lots of uh, uh, bits amended and and things tweaked. Um, but and it's and you can and a lot of some of the editions right now. I've got the let's see, the Norton and the Broadview edition do a good job of having you know both or or pointers to both. Um, but it's it's you know, it's kind of fun to dive into. Um, I mean, there are differences at level of sentences, some scenes added, uh, and the movies tend to draw on some of the 1831 as well. But uh, the 1818 is the one you want to go to. Okay, so I, I think that's the one that. that I read. I think so. I listened to um, a version off of Downpour with Simon Templeman, Anthony Heald, and Stefan Rudnicki. Ooh. How was it? Excellent. Good. Really excellent. Yeah. Rudnicki read the, the parts from the point of view of the monster. Of course. And mm-hmm. uh, Anthony Heald was Victor Frankenstein. He's a good actor. Although, wow. he didn't use that accent. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I just commend you for, for saying, for carefully labeling these guys correctly for Frankenstein and the monster? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's still... Yeah, the creature... Well, the names he has is interesting. I mean, he's sometimes called Wretch, sometimes Creature, mm-hmm. or Daemon. Um, oh, there's one so is like Insect. Uh-huh. It was like um, Wretched... No, it wasn't Wretched Insect, but it was like Detestable Insect or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Victor works himself into a ladder, you know? I mean, it's... it's. I remember one of the fun things about reading this is how different it is from most of the movies, how the monster is the most articulate character in the entire book, the best-spoken... Mm-hmm. And when Victor shows up around him, Victor becomes nearly incoherent with rage. You know, mm-hmm. he's like a, it's like a Japanese manga character. You know, he's a, 
<laughs> exclamation points radiating from his head. Mm-hmm. You know? Do any of us like to, to be face to face with um, something we did that was wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, the first time saying. he was face to face with it, he fled. And uh, and then in this unbelievable scene, well, the whole book is full of unbelievable scenes. But when he, you know, the monster wakes up, opens his eye, Victor runs away, and what does he do? Goes to sleep. Yeah, I love that. And then he has well, the, that, the best, the best Freudian nightmare dream of all time, too. But that's <laughs> that romantic thing of um, a kind of a convention, isn't it? Of you know, you're overwrought with all these things, and so then you fall into an illness for two months. That you almost die from, and then a lot of illness. The in thing this. that gets me from from that though is then he gets up and goes, "Whoa, I am so sorry I did that. That was a horrible mistake." And then he tries to act as if it never happened without thinking about the fact that he left that, as he thinks, monster right. rampaging out there. Right. Move on. Moving on. I mean, yeah. well, does this a lot. Remember the beginning when he's talking to Walton, and Walton says, "So, how would you uh, how'd you do it? What's the secret?" And he's like, "No, I'm not going to forget it. I'm not going to tell you. No one should know." few letters on. There's Victor going over his notes, clarifying them. <laughs> and they go. No, I, I, I think I think you're totally right. It's it's this partly the convention of the fainting hero or heroine. And in fact, in the late 18th century, Britain has this whole subgenre called the sentimental novel, where characters are constantly weeping, passing out, swooning. Um, it gets parodied before Frankenstein comes out, um, but that's that's part of it. Uh, there's also that's, you know, that's picked up by Lovecraft as well. He's <laughs> He's always um, having everybody faint at, at the things that they are um, yes. doing and seeing. But, um, but it's because of cosmic horror rather than for interpersonal dynamics. Right, because of the, the thing they – well, I mean, it, it's it's you can sort of see the threads back to this, obviously. Mm-hmm. But he even did his own version of this story uh, with the Herbert West reanimator, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. where, where it was a comedy. And it wasn't a comedy in the sense that um, Young Frankenstein was a comedy, sort of a – Sort of a sex comedy, sort of a, you know, just a Mel Brooks comedy. Yeah. Or the it movie Reanimator. Gruesome comedy. Well, so, so is the movie Reanimator, too. Which is, yeah, yeah, and uh, it, it is very much a comedy, right? It's, it's so, it's not. Lovecraft also did a Frankenstein riff, arguably in Cool Air, where, you know, a man. Oh, yeah. Um, which is also As similar to oppose, uh, uh, Voldemort. You know, the man preserves himself um, past death through mm-hmm. hypnosis. But, it, you know, um, I, I think a fun, a, an alternative way of looking at this would be looking at M.R. James's ghost stories, which always have these um, wonderful protagonists who are Oxford or Cambridge dons <laughs> who are always doing the wrong thing. And they often flip, you know, flip out, pass out, fall asleep, you know. They, but um, it's a gentle comedy um, along with the horror there as well. But it's not very funny in, in Shelley's novel. She's a... Uh, this is this is played straight. But that's an interesting comparison because those people who do things wrong in M.R. James stories are always seeking knowledge that they should not really have, that they've been warned off of. And they're just like, oh, I'll just look at this thing. I'll just try this flute. I'll just whatever, right. you know. And I'll whistle then, the flute. Huh. Yeah, yeah, everybody's had all these warnings, you know, the ghostly voices. I thought I saw someone coming back on the beach, but I'll still blow it some, you know. And so... Then you've got this whole thing where the whole idea is looking at should you be tinkering with trying to create life because then you're becoming God. And when you do it, are you taking responsibility for what you do? Right. Exactly. So, the responsibility I never would have 
central yeah. thing. I never would have thought of that comparison. That is great. Well, it's a, so, uh, I want to I want to throw out a couple of quotes at the beginning uh, that I read in this introduction. I've got uh, to. It's not by Shelley. It's not by anybody in particular. It's just one of the later paperback editions. But I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, why did why is this book still around? Why are people reading a book by a teenager? You know, uh, from almost two hundred years ago. It's it's there's got to be some reasons for it. So in in the introduction, one of the things that struck me was uh, there's a couple of contemporary reviews, and uh, one of them was uh, the Edinburgh Review. I, I guess both both of these are Edinburgh magazines. Edinburgh was where the literary scene was at the time. It says uh, here's a re- part of a review. Taste and judgment alike revolted at this kind of writing. And the gr- notice there's no person in the, in the review. Right? The greater the ability with which it may be executed, the worse it is. It inculcates no lesson of conduct, manner, or morality. It cannot mend and will not even amuse its readers unless their tastes have been deplorably vi- violated. Oh, no, vitiated. What does vitiated mean? Vitiated. Um, removed of life. Ah, okay. Oh, nice. Oh, but except notice it says it cannot mend the reader. <laughs> like the reader's broken. The well, reader the, is something to be fixed. Also, the oh. only reason you would read it is for an improving value. Yes, that's a classic reason for um, for reading literature. In well, we we talk about that today, right? Right, we, right. Um, yeah, but it, am I willing it, to read? It needs to be mended. You you you're broken, right? Fallen world, right? I mean, it's a ah, interesting. Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the other contemporary review by Sir Walter Scott in another, uh, in oh, Blackwood, yeah. which is another uh, Edinburgh magazine, says, um, with the high idea of the author's original genius and happy power of expression, despite, uh, oh, no, wait. So I'm, I think that's it. <laughs> uh, the whole review? <laughs> that's the entire review? Okay. Just a blurb from him. It was basically. Can you give us a couple right. words for the cover? <laughs> Walter Scott liked it. Walter Scott liked well, it. I've never read him. anything by him, but I like him better now just hearing that. <laughs> oh, you got to read Scott. Scott's wonderful. Do I? I mean, yeah. Do I have to? Yeah. What do I have to read by him? Ah, uh, I look at. It's going to hook me. Ivanhoe's pretty amazing. It's uh, Ivanhoe is a great medieval uh, adventure. Lots of fine stuff. Julie, you would really like Ivanhoe. Well, actually. especially especially following up. I'm almost done with the Lord of the Rings, so that might be good. It's very, it's very. Julie would like this book. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure. It has Scott would like it too. Cool. Yeah, and I have not read it. Okay, it's, you, it's got cool stuff in it. It's got a, a lot of etymology in it, which I like. Yeah. I like uh, insects. That goes with if, the Tolkien follow-up very joking, I'm well. Um, okay, right, if you want, oh, go ahead. If you want reviews. I, no, I was going to say there are a few more reviews we can we can bring up because the book was yeah, widely sure. discussed. Uh, Scott's review is actually uh, okay, about eight pages of it. In the oh, okay, page. good. Um, and he begins actually with the uh, opening quote of the book from Paradise Lost. Yeah. Oh, Did yeah. I request thee, Maker, from my clay to mold me, man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? And he has, uh, I mean, he goes all over this book. I mean, he talks about um, links to the uh, proto-romantic poet Collins from the late 18th century. Um, talks about theater, uh, links to uh, Tom, links to uh, Gulliver's Travels. 
Mm. Um, and then does a good thing of uh, linking to uh, Percy Shelley and to uh, William Godwin mm-hmm. very appropriately. Brings up Shakespeare, Macbeth, and uh, and Caliban. Um, I mean, he it's Caliban. A, right, good point. It's a, and, he, and he quotes from uh, Percy Shelley. Um, I think from the same poem that uh, Mary quotes from. Yeah, it's a it's a nice review. I am going to find that. You know, uh, now that I think about it, yeah, there there is a bit of a the tempest in this in this book. Um, not so much the actual storm, but um, it was it really struck me uh, reading the second half of the book with with uh, I guess well, it's not exactly the half, but with with Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein going sort of against everything he was going for in the first, you know, in the creation process. Mm-hmm. He's like science, big exclamation mark. Right. And then, uh, after, you know, after he, he's told, you know, uh, uh this monster's doing all the, uh, the monster says, Hey, I'm killing your family and stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he goes the opposite way and he starts saying spirits, everything is full of spirits. And, and, and what's funny is before he creates the monster, there's no talk of spirits. I mean, there, there is sort of a, there's a the word comes up a couple of times, but like this dead flesh isn't going to be inhabited with the spirit of, of the previous owner, right? Or, or owners. And that afterwards, when he's chasing the monster through the, uh, Russia and the Arctic, right? He's saying stuff like, oh, the spirits are leaving out little things for me to eat and right. helping me um, to, to track down this demon. And, well, some of those spirits are actually the, the demon itself, right? The monster is leaving food for him. <laughs> and so it's like, wow, that's a nice um, thing. And, you know, of course, in The Tempest, that's all uh, the spirits are are what uh Prospero uses to do everything, right? He's got Ariel uh basically doing every piece of work for him. And uh Caliban is sort of the the dog's body. Um yeah. Clown. yeah, and and there's even talk of the pre the mother of uh Caliban, right? It was oh yeah. The previous sort of inhabitant. And it it's all a sort and that, that what's so cool about that play by the way, Julie, this is me getting to finally talk about the. Tale. I was real. I was like, "Oh, go, Jesse, go, go." Is uh, what's so cool about it is it's the switch, right? This is the switch from the pre-science world to the science world, because what happens is uh, our our man who read so many books is cast away to this island, and he uses these arcane books of knowledge to gather up all the spirits and gain great power, and then. At the end of the play, he gives up all his 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 uh, magic. He he will do magic no more. Uh, all the future will be science. Yeah, there's a link there to um, his contemporary Christopher Marlowe. When uh, the end of Doctor Faustus, the la- and when Faustus is being carried off to hell, he shrieks, "I'll burn my books!" I mean, it's the last thing he'll do, right? But mm-hmm. but no, I I think I think we have one step with Caliban, but then the next step is the education of young Victor. Because, I mean, he's young. He's a, this is, the monster is his uh, independent study at college, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, but remember, he gets his first education is with those kind of books. He gets to read Paracelsus mm-hmm. and okay, mm-hmm. and then his teachers mock him and say, no, 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 you got to read the real stuff. And they upgrade him. I mean, so <laughs> to, answer your, to answer your question, I mean, 
one, why do we keep reading this book? It's one of the great books about the culture of science or the age of science. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, Victor is this weirdly ambivalent guy because we see him as the spirit, excuse the pun, the spirit of science, you know, meddling in nature's domain, but he keeps using religious or theological language. You know, it's demon, it's spirits. Um, he, he does a lot of religious swearing, you know, lots of hell, lots of infernal, lots of by God. Uh, so it's, it's kind of that, that, that crack in the, in the, in time when we go from the theological world to the scientific world. Well, also the Brian, uh, Brian Aldiss, isn't he the one who said that this was the first science fiction novel? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree pretty much. I, I mean, agree too. Is, yeah. There are pre- there are predecessors, but this is the one that kicks it off mm-hmm. and it has all mm-hmm. the. Has all, I mean, it's right. funny. Right. It's funny. You know, you look at the yeah, movies and all the adaptations. Movies, all the they have they uh, have uh, lots and lots, lots of big, big science, big science, in, but there isn't it. There isn't it. He just puts a spark into the body and it's up. Yeah. yeah, and you know that that's that's one word spark makes everybody do it electrically, right? Yep. The yep. the yep. electrical element is actually not what and they think of Galvani and you know the the frog's mm-hmm. legs and stuff, but actually the text is much more like Reanimator, you know the the Lovecraft. It's it's more chemical. Mm-hmm. Well, this uh, this is a time when when the sciences are beginning to break out into separate sciences. I mean, you've got you know the, the 18th century. I mean, we're still talking natural philosophy and science as a whole, but by the early 19th century, when we're beginning to separate out into biology versus chemistry versus chemics versus you know physics, and electricity is this wild thing that people are still having fun with. Um, I mean. Plus, since the romantics loved nature so much, I mean, it's very significant that there are certain times in the book where there's the, there are huge lightning storms, mm-hmm. you know, oh, because yeah. that is indicating that, um, that connection with those things that, um, I think science is wanting to study and break out and the romantics are going, they're kind of reacting to the enlightenment, right? And I don't understand this as well as Brian or everybody else probably, but, if they saw the Enlightenment as a cold-hearted attempt to get knowledge out of nature, placing man above nature, they were trying to understand it more through observing nature or being part of nature, saying it should be more of a harmonious whole than broken into little pieces where you're not connecting everything together. And that, to me, is the heart of the book because the subtitle, to me, is The New Prometheus. Well, oh, the, the modern Prometheus. Well, the modern Prometheus, sorry, because the whole Prometheus myth is he creates man from clay and then goes ahead against the wishes of the gods or the other gods and um, gives him fire, which is civilization and progress and all that stuff. And then he's sentenced to have his liver pecked out. And the liver, since I was looking all this up, I was very excited by it, um, was the seat of emotions for Greeks. And I thought, oh, that puts a whole nother spin on the whole thing because Victor the whole time is is so run by his emotions the whole book and he never really seems to learn anything by it no. he, because his emotions are about him you know yeah, remember, no, uh, remember when the monster says uh, I'll be with you on your wedding night ah oh, that great gothic threat and mm-hmm. he says yeah. well so I made preparations to protect myself <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to yeah. Yeah. So he leaves his wife out and oh, or his bride. You know. Oh God, the monster got her. What a surprise! You know. I'm not going to no. even tell you about it, honey, because I'm too upset. 
Well, you're you're absolutely right to talk about first to talk about uh, the the science role. I mean, the romantic. There's no real romantic movement in Britain. There's a bunch of writers that we look back on and call romantics. Um, and so there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of different ideas. People have relations. I mean, some of them love science. Some of them love parts of it. Right. Some of them see the opposition. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, and you're right to mention the nature writing. And one of the things I love about this book is that it's this, every scene outdoors is, is just grand. You know, you can't go for a walk yes. or going to a glacier, go to the North Pole, you go to Siberia. There's always giant lightning storms. I mean, it's, you know, it's always a wonderful, high pitched, uh, glorious sublime nature and and put up against the science but but keep in mind too that the the harmonious whole is pretty tricky this is this is written during an age of immense political upheaval and revolutions and mary's family is a bunch mm-hmm. of revolutions you know her mom Aren't they though? the feminist mother the if, if these guys weren't father. if these guys weren't such radicals they'd be the first family of british letters because you, you know you've got the father who is who wrote one of the, arguably the first great detective story, uh, Caleb Williams, which is a classic Gothic novel, uh, and a lot of the reviews compare Frankenstein to Caleb Williams. Then the next year, or so the year before, he writes the first great work of anarchist political theory in English, <laughs> which is a bestseller. I mean, it makes his reputation. Um, and uh, then his mom, you know, great or her mom, great feminist writer and a novelist right. to boot. You know, and then her, and then one of her husbands, or you know, Percy Shelley, one of the first rank of British um, poets. I mean, these uh, these are astonishing characters, but they're too radical. You know, anarchists, Gothics, huge friends with Lord Byron. Oh yeah, the ultimate free yeah. spirit, may I say? Oh yeah, I mean, this gets family love. <laughs> and then they, and then they get even, and then they get even more uncomfortable. I mean, Percy gets kicked out of uh, school for being an atheist. He uh, manages to irritate lots of people by being a militant fe- uh, vegetarian, and yeah. you can see that show up in the novel when the, the monster is a good creature. He's only eating berries and yeah. right walnuts or something. He's a vegan, uh, not even a vegetarian. You know, yeah. that's how you can. Uh, I, think, good. I think he does. Doesn't he use the fire to cook some meat, or he cooks some food on the fire? He does cook something because he enjoys the cooked food. Yeah, because it's a revelation. That's the one of the things is is the that the food of, of of the fire not only heats and lights but it also warm, warms foods. It, it it was it show when when I thought of the modern Prometheus, I didn't think of the creation of man, which obviously is much probably more like what it's about. It's the it's the bringing of fire. Right. Well, that's the what it's about. Is well, yeah, but who is the modern Prometheus, right? So it's it is it Frankenstein? Yes. Uh huh. Is it the monster? Hmm. No, if, because the if the monster, spark of life the, is the fire. Right. That's well, yes, the gift he would give. He's, he, he's he's given the the spark of life by Frankenstein, um, and he's also made by Frankenstein, right? So obviously Frankenstein's the modern Prometheus, but the the bringing of fire. Is also the technology, right? It, it fires the first tech. Mm-hmm. Julie, you once did a book called uh, "The Wonder Stick." Oh yeah, which, which is about the bringing, the coming of the bow. Rue right? was the first scientist, I want to say. It's it's pretty it's pretty it's fun because it's you know action at a, di- a spooky action at a distance, right? right. Where yeah. right. you can throw. That's that's actually human. What made humans apparently uh, so great at killing animals is 
we could throw things accurately, and the other animals are like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> we can't do that. They can throw things. They just can't aim. Right. So, so well, we get this aiming thing happening. That's great. But fire is, I mean, it's a natural thing, but we're the only animal that can use it in the way that we can, which is we heat our homes, we light our houses, we cook our food with it. And it's tame, whereas to other animals, it's danger. Well, you can go, fire runs throughout this book. I mean, you could, mm-hmm. if Eric Rapkin were here, he would talk about the, um, um, the connection between fire and knowledge, uh, literal enlightenment. Right. I mean, which is a, a major, major deal, and so you know, in, in a sense, we have we have that. But we also have, uh, I want to say it's chapter two, where we've got that um, terrible scene of, of fire and lightning, of the tree burning, mm. um, and this is, this is, looks like a throwaway scene, but I think it's actually a, a very scary scene, where um, when he's about fifteen year old, let's say when I was about fifteen year old, we retired to our house near Belrive, where we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm. Uh, let's see. As I watched, as I stood at the door, of a sudden I beheld a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak, which stood about twenty yards from our house. And so soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared, and nothing remained but a blasted stump. Well, I had never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. Among other things, in a in a in a book profoundly about family, to see a tree as in a family tree destroyed is a mm. pretty big warning of what's going nice. to happen. And this Ooh. is what happened. Because the family is destroyed, it's wiped out. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But also, like but also, it's fire. I mean, it's not just the lightning strike. I mean, he mentioned fire issuing from this. Um, I mean, it's a it's a terrifying thing to see. But I, 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 all that fire and light, you also have to pair with the, uh, as you say, the making of humans. Because I mean, it's the modern Prometheus, but it's also Paradise Lost. Right. right. That's also the same the same line is in there, right? The making of man from clay. Yep. Yep. And this mortal clay. Uh and which is again beloved of all the adaptations of going into cemeteries and doing I mean, she wasn't the first one to do to talk about body stealing. That's a, a classic mm-hmm. trope of uh Gothic fiction. And by eighteen eighteen the 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 first generation of the Gothic was already done. I mean the Gothic's grand years in, in Britain were in the seventeen nineties. And you already have a ton of parodies coming out by the uh, 1810s. Um, and, well, you know, you... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, well, they were following, you know, real examples. There were those big trials in Edinburgh about the people yep. stealing bodies and, and actually murdering people for the scientific schools that were in Edinburgh. So yeah, they were yeah. just, they were latching onto something Burke happening. Hare, that's their names. Huh? Yeah, Burke and Burke Hare, right? Hare. Yep. They're a lot of fun. Um you know, there's, there's actually throughout. <laughs> Just the, don't get drunk with them. <laughs> yes, yes. Throughout the 18th century, you actually have a, a true crime subgenre in in Britain. You get things like a lot of books about about criminals. Um, there's this um, fun kind of um, ex- criminal about to be executed gives a speech about their life and their perhaps repentance, and usually ghostwritten, you know, and and published. And so there's tons of those, um, and so. You know, you look at at the sources feeding into Frankenstein, and there's a lot of true crime. There's also, you know, real science, people playing with galvanics and, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but all that, that making of humans is one part science in it, and of course it's theology. I mean, there's uh, that's that's one of the interpretations of Frankenstein. I mean, you ask why we read it now, and mm-hmm. one of the reasons to keep reading it is the theological interpretation, which I, I disagree with personally, but still it's very popular. You know, the, there are some things man was not meant to know kind of, yeah. kind of school. And you, you yeah, really it, hear that. It, 
it, it's it sort of starts off that I mean this if this is the first science fiction novel, uh, which is pretty arguable I think mm-hmm. if 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 you buy that it's also the start of the tradition of the uh, science bad right <laughs> science science bad but I'm not sure that that's the only way to I mean I think that's a little simplistic. Okay. I, uh, earlier this week, I I was thinking about you know there's something weird going on about uh, the the this is a motherless monster right mm-hmm. he's, he's, he has a father but no mother and and uh, I I want to talk about Young Frankenstein as well but Young Frankenstein Young Frankenstein is actually not a remake it's not a an adaptation of the of the book it's an adaptation right. or uh it's inspired by the movie from 1931. And also by some of the Hammer horror films too. A little bit, yeah. There's a there's a little bit in there, but uh, I mean, even use some of the same equipment in the uh, yeah. Yeah. the creation scene. It's done in black and white. It's it does a lot of the parallel yeah. scenes. There's a there's a couple of you know nods to the other movies, but really it doesn't care that much about the original book. It which is not to say it's bad. It's just it's not it's dealing with the problems or the issues generated by the movies, and the what's what's so cool about young frankenstein i think it's the best adaptation of frankenstein Agreed. Uh, uh is that it does it solves the problem that's set up by the book and therefore the movies which is why is victor frankenstein such an asshole right <laughs> that he creates life and doesn't deal with it well gene wilder's character um, he does the exact same thing and he screws up, but he says, no, it's time to man up. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to lock you, lock me in that room and don't <laughs> let me out. I'm going to show him that I love him. And he's scared out of his mind. He goes and deals with it. Right. But and how does he deal with it that way? Vaudeville. <clears throat> He, he gets he gets into the, he 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 they they go through all the paces that are happening in the original 1931 uh, black and white version, and then he says no, I'm going to deal with this. And he goes in there with the support of Terry Gar's character <laughs> and uh, you know the uh, Frau Blucher, Richman, yes, right, yeah, and gets in there and and then he says how am I going to deal with this? And he says, hey there, handsome. <laughs> I love it. And the monster's like... And the monster looks behind uh-huh. him like, is there somebody behind me? <laughs> that goes right back to the book, right? Because is he really hideous? I don't think he is. I don't know. I think... I want to argue that later, okay? Um, but okay. I'm going to continue this little bit. I, I'm not sure he's hideous. So in the movie, um, he's not as hideous as in the 1931 movie. The he's He's, he's pretty freakish but he's not hideous but anyways he continues on with this path of no look who you you want to talk about physical strength right <laughs> who, who's got it who, who who has the physique of an olympian right you know right. He continues down this path building up the the boy and then and then he says um and you know i understand your your frustration and pain and and he and he brings the head of the monster to his breast like a mother and you know it's a very this Jewish is a movie. Angel. That's right. This is the face of a mother could love, and he, it's a very Jewish movie because you know I, yeah, I yes. grew up in a Jewish house, and oh, this I is seen. how Jewish mothers talk to their their sons, right? They, this is a boy that the world will love, right? <laughs> You're great, and all that building up of the ego. And what happens is the monster breaks down. Oh, oh, oh I'm so sorry, <laughs> right? Finally, I'm being loved. 
and everything's good pretty much from there. There's a few hiccups along the road, but, but the point ultimately of, it's a happy story. But the point of him in that room, the thing I want to say is he says, don't let me out. And then he's faced by the monster and he's begging to be let out. And it's only right. when they follow his orders and he's forced to be in that small room with the monster. that community to help Then he out. has to, right, exactly. And that's an interesting point. I never thought about that. Victor, oh gosh, Victor, Victor, Victor. Oh, so shallow, so self-absorbed. But he goes at everything alone. Yep. So in the book, you know, he's never, he won't even tell Elizabeth, you know, oh honey, why am I so cast down on our wedding days? Like, could you he just leave me alone for a while? I got some issues. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. In the book, he doesn't even have an uh, even have an Igor or an Igor or yeah. a Fritz yeah. to help him. Well, because he's an undergrad. I mean, this is a sophomore <laughs> project, right? You, know, you, don't, you don't get that when you're a sophomore. I mean, yeah, that's sort of the problem. Well, well and, but I would argue the science issue, I, or the theological slash science thing. I yes, definitely, I see what you're saying, Brian. But to me, the question really was more of. Once you've done this thing, whether you think it's a mistake or whether you think it's not, are you going to be responsible for what you've done, which is what Jesse is saying about young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, he is responsible because he's got to be for one thing. But um, (laughs) although I guess he doesn't, he could run away. But that community won't let him for one thing. I think he sets sets himself up in a nice community. Yeah, exactly. And and I want to come back to that. But. Um, because I think that's actually literally the center of the book. But the you know, when you when you look at the creation, it's described in a very strange way. And this is this is not unusual. A lot of um, late eighteenth century writers had a hard time describing people's bodies in prose. You know, they they use a lot of euphemisms like well formed and, and well shaped. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's all these ambiguous terms. I just love this. Uh, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. All right, that sounds bad. Eyes being yellow, you know, that's not good. Um, and then his limbs were in proportion. All right. <laughs> um, I selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful? Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. It's a great phrase, right? Try to imagine, like, is he all veiny? Does it, Super uh, stretched. Yeah. But then his hair was of lustrous black and flowing. Cool. Mm-hmm. His teeth of pearly whiteness. Awesome. But these luxuriances only formed a more hard contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Ah, it kind of does look unpleasant, you know, depending on how you... Yeah, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? That's the thing is, 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 is he... Once you see him on screen or in a comic book or anything, that's how you're fixed as to what he looks like. But I, I know that there are certain adaptations or variations on this story that make him like a new god, like a so mm-hmm. so beauteous that yeah. people are jealous, and that's why they hate him. Well, and that's why Victor has to kill him or you know, and abort his uh, child. But, you know, to th- this steps into another reason why people read this and why since the 60s one of the great arguments about this is that this is a great feminist novel mm-hmm, because yeah. you've got male science that does terrible things and it's, it's really explicitly male science I mean he lives in Victor lives in this male only world I mean you know he has his friend Walton he he makes a child without a woman 
it's this kind of, you know, wonderful misogynist, you know, fantasy of, um, and he, the first child he makes is male. And, you know, the female child he tries to make, he aborts in this, mm-hmm. you know, in a pretty horrifying scene. Um, and this is nightmarish. And all of this is enclosed within the outer narrative that we haven't talked about, which is the sea exploration. And yeah, that is led by a captain who is screwing up. My Walton is, he's, he's lost. He mistreats his men. They're at the verge of mutiny. And when, you know, they're, lo- they're stuck in ice, things are going bad. And all he wants to do is talk with this stowaway, you know, or this castaway and just hang out with him. I mean, it's that all of this, all of this is being put together in a packet and sent to Walton's sister. And it's as if, you know, we're, we're being put in this interesting kind of feminine position or female position where we're seeing males behaving badly. Um, and the solution is not to do that. Um, so there's all kinds of, I mean, this is partly where you get the reading of this being about birth and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which Ken Russell's movie, I don't think we talked about Gothic makes that central to Frankenstein. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen this, uh, Gothic yeah, history. I saw. I saw. It's, I don't remember much about birth, but it 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 basically fictionalizes the night where they all sat around reading ghost stories and then wrote ghost stories, right? It can, yes, and it and it and it, the the climax of the movie is is as uh, Mary Shelley and uh, childbirth. Um, I mean, it's a strange movie, but it, but it, it does key into this reading that this is uh, among other things a novel, you know, a, a major critique of uh, male society, of sexual society, of male science. And in the 90s, when science studies took off uh, in a big way, this became a kind of canonical text to look at. And you think of all the ways that Victor misbehaves, they're really clearly gender-coded. And so when you go back, when you mention, I think rightly, when you mention Young Frankenstein, uh, Jesse, where you have a character acting maternally, it's partly for comedy, but also it's... It's good. I mean, it's like he's oh, learned yeah. the lesson it, of... Uh, it's, it's a beautiful iteration, a beautiful development of what is really the central problem, right? How to, and, and notice, actually, in the movie, he is not Victor Frankenstein. He is the grandson right. of what we presume is actually the, the character from the first night uh, the 1931 adaptation yeah. who I'm not even sure then was I don't think he was Victor Frankenstein it's like this family has been cursed and they actually talk about that in the movies the 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 curse of the frankensteins and they're all the same and they're all scientists they all always screw up and then we all have to get this gang of ruffians to come out and kill the monster every time well and if you want to and it's finally broken this time and I'm just thinking about this going, oh, well, and if we just want to keep pushing in the envelope just that much further, let's look at the female character in the movie who's not behaving at all in a feminine or welcoming and loving way, and that's Madeline Kahn, who I can't remember her name in the movie, but, you know, his girlfriend. She's it takes the monster who's known love, Yep. right? Or is it when he escapes? And he says, oh, you men are all the same, six or seven quick ones, know, and we're off to laugh with the boys, but... It's- but it's you know the, soon, they the come song together, she and she when when what when she's when she's being yeah oh when, sweet mystery of life that's right oh sweet mystery of life <laughs> I found you then that's what Victor was looking for right hey don't forget Frau Blucher is played as anti-feminine most of it that's I mean, right which is why her line he was my boyfriend is so funny. <laughs> yeah. I want to I, I want to ask a question about Frau Blucher because my my yeah. niece was here watching that movie last night. She says, why does she care about this monster? And I said, well, it's kind of her grandson. Yep. 
Right? Because she spends the whole movie trying to convince uh, Frederick uh, uh, Frankenstein to to become uh you know follow in the footsteps of the family tradition that's because she loved his fa- his grandfather or his right yeah. but, but it's a it, tribute but, to victor yes but it, it also you know not just to come live there but also to make her a grandson sort of thing right yeah. it's, there, there's no cuz she doesn't you know it's not a sexual relationship she has with the with the monster that doesn't even exist yet but she doesn't it's, seem to really care about the monster she just wants, seems to want Victor to have his legacy live on. She does care about him. At one point in the does movie, she, 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 she's going to free him uh, because they're going to destroy him. And she oh, is that's right. I forgot. That's says, how he gets hey. loose. Yeah, she's I the one who says, no, I'm going to free him and you can't stop me. And, and the way you look at her hand, it looks like she has a knife, but she's actually just holding her fist in resolution. Well, in, in a sense, we can go back to the feminist criticism here in a sense in that she's a domestic servant, right? Yes, and so, so that's the implication. She's yeah. trying to maintain the domestic space. She's trying to get a family in the space. I mean, an insane, <laughs> cursed family, but, you know, um, but that's part of it. And she's, you know, her love for the uh, grandfather um, is, again, you know, this is, you know, if, if you think about the the novel as a stereotypical male, problematic male universe. And here she is introducing uh, domesticity, which in the period is definitely coded female, um, and still is today. I, I, there's all kinds of reasons to keep reading this book today. I mean, there's the, it's, it's this foundational myth of science, as some put it. It's an update of Faust. Um, it's this wonderful feminist critique. Um, there's also the, the politics of it, which are really kind of tricky. And it's one of the reasons I hate the Kenneth Branagh movie. Um, it could have been so good to get things wrong. Is keep in mind that this this comes from a radical family tradition. I mean, when I say that Godwin writes a book about anarchism, I don't mean this in a interpretive way. I mean it's that's its position. Uh, it's called political justice, and it's all about why governments are deeply screwed up and wrong, and why you're better off without governments and organizing yourselves personally. You know, you've got Percy who writes more fiction like this. He has this great mad epic called The Revolt of Islam about um, a brother and sister who managed to try and overthrow this tyrannical regime and create a new order. Um, I mean, it's, of course, a revolutionary time, and this shows up throughout the book. I mean, you get governments which are just totally evil and clumsy and bad. Remember the central story? Remember how the um, the family's persecuted because the uh, mm-hmm. the French government just wants their cash? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, and the description. Turkish- yeah. And then uh, that's a really n- interesting parallel to uh, I think that that family in the woods, the French family living in, I don't know, wherever there is somewhere in near Geneva is 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 kind of parallel to the family of the Frankensteins in a couple of ways. One one way is that uh, Victor is actually locked up for a crime he didn't commit. Right. Later on, um, the one oh, the, the yeah. monster done, um, and he is eventually released and escapes to another land. And what um, happens, but, by the way, to the criminal trial? Um, don't know. Remember Justine who gets killed? Oh well, of course there, there's that trial as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, justice she, is totally she, wrong in this. Yeah, it's true. Which is why the, in the Brownog movie they have instead of having justice be wrong. It's the the Frankenstein family tries to help her out and gets stymied by a mad mob. So uh, it's it's oh. this weirdly 
pro-aristocratic, pro-government movie, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of this. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's a bit like Anne Rice, who always wants you to sympathize with wealthy slaveholders. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, this book is the opposite. I mean, here's Victor, who's like doing these terrible crimes. He's careening around Europe. Totally, you know, governments don't stop him. They have, you know, they help him sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but poor people like Justine get to be killed along the way. Yeah, she's, I'm sorry, she's, I interrupted you. You, you, were, you were going somewhere good. Who, who is you? <laughs> I was? I don't remember. Oh, well, then I just want to say, and Justine gets killed, and what does Victor say? Oh, now this is on my conscience, too. I'm never <laughs> right. going to sleep again. It's all about me. I feel terrible. <laughs> right. like, yeah, sure, she's oh. dead, but I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now I'm really sad. I'm like, oh, you, oh. Uh. But that's the contrast is the creature is super intelligent because he figures out all this stuff on his own. He's kind. He's love-starved. And he he is forced to, event, well, he sees himself as forced to eventually, after continual mistreatment, after continual misunderstanding, and continually being rejected by his creator, he deliberately chooses a path of evil because that's the only path of self-expression left to him. He sees it. He's rejected uh, so it's a creator. fascinating contrast because he seems like the romantic's perfect man. Oh, you know, he's lived in nature, he's super intelligent, he's seen everything right, and here's Victor, who's had every advantage, kind parents, all this stuff, education, and he's he's the monster. Because he's well, not... interesting there, yeah, is exactly that Victor and, and the monster are father and son, exactly like each other. Remember, Victor says when he's a young man that he had a temper, a very strong temper, oh, and that yeah. only the guiding hands of his loving parents who encouraged him that kept him from sort of acting out. <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> Spare the rod. Hey, I, I have a quick question. Um, yeah. in, the, in the 1831 version, was anything made of where they got the brain for Frankenstein? <laughs> because in the, in the one that I read, there there really wasn't anything. No. no and it's interesting that the, the movie, um, what was yeah, it, the they, 1931 movie, made such a huge deal out of it. And, of course, Young Frankenstein did, too. Abby normal. Uh, Abby someone, yeah. <laughs> someone. yeah. But but no. here, you know, it, it just says that, um, you know, the, the first part of that movie was all about, you know, them finding body parts and things, but... You know, in the book, it just says the dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished my, many of my materials and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation. Um, so he was gathering pieces and things. And then in the next chapter, chapter five, at the very beginning, it just says, OK, he was done. And it's interesting to me that he was kind of a blank slate. And in the movie, because he had this Abby someone. He he had baggage to start with, you know. Uh, right. He had something to overcome. Well, in in the movie, it's the body of a criminal mm-hmm. and and the mind of an abnormal criminal. <laughs> well, young Frankenstein. I, in the eight, 1931 movie, was it like that? I yeah, seen. yes. In fact, yeah. everything that, yeah. everything that the, the okay. what happens is young Frankenstein tries to undo well, the it, damage. It wasn't, it wasn't really a the criminal. The, the first scene in a 1931 movie is them exhuming someone, but it doesn't tell you that it was a criminal. Uh, wasn't there a corpse hanging from a tree? That, That's young yeah, Frankenstein. there was that too, and they knocked him down, and then he said, oh, this one's no good. Okay. He actually, Victor said, or actually his name is Henry in the movie for some reason. <laughs> but, um, he, because it's set, it's set in the time period. It's set in 1930s. Right. 
No so one would be named it, Victor in 1930s. You're right. Uh, well, <laughs> it, it, it anglicizes it a bit more. Well, but also you have to remember also that, um, I mean, what's cool about Young Frankenstein is it retcons the the two. <laughs> that's the technical term, right? right, right. Retroactive continuity oh, retcons <laughs> the book and the and the 1931 movie, and also throws in a, a few nods to like you're saying the Curse of Frankenstein and such from the Hammer movies. Yeah. But it, it says, look, the the 1931 movie is super iconic. We're going to deal with that. But we're also going to fix the problems that it, uh, well, at least address the problems that it, it, went, I mean, I don't think Mel Brooks said, I'm going to, I'm going to straighten out this thing. Yeah. <laughs> he just said, I'm going to make a fun movie, but yeah. it, it, it also makes it out because it, Victor is, is living in the late t- 17th century or late 19th, late 18th century, early 19th century. Um, Henry is early 20th century and, um, and, uh, What's his Fred Frederick or Froderick? Froderick is <laughs> living in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, he goes to a uh, part of Europe that uh, is Transylvania Station, which <laughs> there that even mixes it up even <laughs> right. more. <laughs> because then you can do oh, the yeah. song Europe, parody. Yeah, you know, you gotta have these things. Well, but also remember, remember in the 30s, Universal uh, had this this lock on monsters, and they had you know. Frankenstein and Dracula was the same thing, so they they, they were often paired up. Um, was it Boris Karloff who played the monster in 1931? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. because I just want to say, I, I know this is going to go off track just a bit, but it connects, is that I fell in love with him as an actor watching the movie The Body Snatchers. Mm. Which yeah. uh, he is... Stevenson adaptation. Robert Louis Stevenson adaptation. They add a subplot to make it longer, and it's very obvious, but it doesn't really ruin it. But Boris Karloff is a cab driver slash body snatcher, so he's yep. playing an actual person. And I was just watching him going, oh, my gosh, he is amazing. And so it made me really sad when I was like, <laughs> monster did he play? Oh, he always kind of got stuck with Frankenstein after that. I'm like, because he was so great. Yeah, so there's your was. body structure connection and your, you know. Well, if I, can, if I can recommend a movie along those lines, um, let me recommend the 1930s movie The Black Cat. This is <gasps> an un- underrated, really strange, crazy movie. It's got Karloff and Lugosi. And it's, it's so oh. hard. It's hard to describe this. Um, but Karloff plays a kind of, he's a mad architect who <laughs> is also a parody of Aleister Crowley. Um, and Lugosi mm-hmm. plays a war veteran um, who is um, there to rescue his wife? Karloff's character, among other things, entombs women in plexiglass in his basement. Um, and his whole is this wonderful Art Deco modernist castle that is built on site on the site of a World War One mass grave. I, it's so strange. The movie, Doesn't sound like it's based on the Edgar Allan Poe story. Nothing to do with it. There's like every so like twice in the movie, a black cat walks by, and that's the only connection. Um, there's there's characters who are flayed alive. There's torture. There's drugs. It's it's such a strange movie. I I can't recommend it enough. But Karloff plays, you know, without a, without a lot of makeup, he plays a scary villain. But oh, yeah. he's but he's but he's articulate. He's powerful. It's a and Lugosi plays a nice guy. And um, Lugosi is in the other movie, too, as a lab assistant. I love that. I love the that. The main doctor. Yeah. It, it's, they're both. So now I have to see the black cat to see them together, together again. It's, it's so weird. I can't believe it was made. 
And uh, I mean, it just, I, I keep showing it to people whenever I can because it's just, it's just a, it feels like a movie from a parallel dimension. Um, and the soundtrack is this like really gentle classical music that has nothing to do with the movie. Um, well, let me, if, if I could, um, God, there's so much to talk about in this book. I, I just wanted to go back to the, the first to the, um, something that, that you guys were talking about. Julie, you mentioned that he's this perfect, um, the monster is this, um, perfect romantic character and there's there's two reasons um why two additional reasons why you're absolutely right one is we got to go back to rousseau um i mean this is this oh, is the great right. uh, the noble savage yes the noble savage is also the blank slate because mm-hmm. the monster is a blank slate that's what's so crucial about following his his role you know man is born free but everywhere he's in chains why because society makes him that way well the monster mm-hmm. is born free as a full adult Right, so he's not physically handicapped like a baby, and he is without society. He goes into the woods. I love his story. I mean, that that is where the book picks up and right. cooks. I mean, right. You know, the way Victor writes, uh, if Victor or Victor tells his story, it's all flowery language and sort of obfuscation and and sort of high mindedness. But when the when the monster starts telling his story to Victor, it becomes like, oh my god, this is such good crisp, clean writing about a man who doesn't know what light is and doesn't know yeah. what... He can't distinguish between his, you know, between uh, himself and the outer world. It, it's basically a story of a man explaining what it was like to be a baby and right. then grow right. up and learn and learn the words and become an articulate, amazing person. Also, you get science fiction right there. This is that, you know, you... One exactly. more science fiction is you, you invent something new and see what happens. And here's mm-hmm. an experience. What's it like to be a baby that's eight feet tall? Um, that's exactly what the scientists were. You know, at the time period, there, there was a, a big debate as to, like, what, how, I mean, this is, I think, a crucial part of science fiction that a lot of people don't focus on in, in the modern era, which is exactly like, how do we detect the world and how do we know what the world is? And, one of the things that they were arguing about back then was um, what is light and when it comes into your yeah. eye, how does it work? And yeah. what is an image? Is it something that you project out into the world or is it something right. that's projected into you? And at the time, there was a uh, a debate and an idea that if a blind man could suddenly be given given sight, you know, someone who had been blind since birth and could be given sight, they could say, you know, if if there's two objects in front of them that they were previously familiar with, one that's like a sphere and the other one that's a, a pyramid, and they had touched them prior to this operation and felt them and known what they're like with their hands, when that operation was complete and the veil is lifted from the, the eyes, could that person tell whether which was which? Could he distinguish immediately whether the round thing or the round splotch or even the word round could they distinguish between a sphere and a pyramid could they and and the answer was when they eventually did do this experiment was no you have to learn right the difference that's what i would right? think yeah oh, but it's, some it's crazy people, this is this is amazing uh goethe who is quoted in the book i'm getting to that i'm coming to that uh has this great insane book on optics where he invents a whole total optical theory that's really Barking mad, but interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, no, I, I think you're right. In fact, here, this is, oh, I love this part. Uh, when you're t- describing the difference between the, the two sub books, 
between the uh, Victor's narrative and the monsters. It's when the when the two of them meet each other for the first time and talk for the first time rather. And <laughs> Victor, devil, do you dare approach me? And do you not fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wrecked upon your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect. Which is that insect line. Mm-hmm. Or rather stay, that I may trample you to dust. And oh, that I could, with the extinction of your miserable existence, restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. I mean, exclamation point. Exclamation. And then, well, to bring the dead people back to life. Yeah, he could do that. <laughs> so the monkers, I expected this reception. All men hate the reception. I mean, he's like, he's like so uh, urbane, you know? I mean, Victor's like, calm down, calm down, chill, chill. You know? um, and you almost but, expect to see him with a hat and a cane or... Put on the <laughs> but, but the the other the other reason you were so right, Julie, is because the monster. See, this is a class I always wanted like, to teach. I like, like him. I he press. keeps saying I'm right. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You are. But, um, is is the monster has the ideal syllabus for becoming a romantic hero? Uh-huh. I mean, the books he reads are in, are oh, astonishing. Yeah. I mean, in part is you, you can think biographically and think, okay, Mary Shelley is showing the heck off, right? Because she is really mm-hmm. smart, really well schooled. But these are all. Totally, totally right. So he's got three books mentioned, right? There's, there's Paradise Lost. There's the Lives of the Ancients. Yep. Who's it? And then what's the third one? There's five books total. Oh, really? One of them isn't really a book. So what you get is you get Paradise Lost. So, all right. Well, it's quoted in the beginning of the novel, right? But right. also, you know, you, you, you want the, the problematic relationship between creator and created. Mm-hmm. You want, you know, creation of life. You get all of that. And of course, it's a tragedy because things go wrong, except, you know, in the end of the book, you only get the, the end of Paradise Lost. You get that flash forward to the present day, you know, where things are getting better. But still, it's this, it's the fall. It's a story of a terrible thing. You also get Goethe's uh, hit novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, which is a classic romantic text about suicide. Uh, it's a, among other things. It's uh, Julie. It's you know one of the swooning books um, oh. about a, a young a young man who falls in love. His love is refused, so he kills himself. And supposedly, this book this book is a big hit in uh, Germany and sparked an epic of suicides where people would oh, imitate great. it. And throw themselves into rivers and be fished out with copies of the book in their pockets. <laughs> so, you know, is, is the monster getting romantic and gloomy? But wait, <laughs> there's more. I mean, he's got he's got Plutarch. So you've got the lives, you know, yeah, the lives of right. Greeks and, and Romans. So at least that's positive. You know, something to achieve. These are ethical models, so that that's how Plutarch is often used. Here are biographies of great men from Greece and Rome and therefore of importance, and you should learn from their successes and failures. So, among other things, you're not teaching Frankenstein's monster to be just some peasant. You're teaching him to be a great man. You know, mm-hmm. he's going to be an actor on mm-hmm. stage. Then the fourth book, this is awesome, is this really pr- fairly obscure but really interesting book by Volney in the 1790s called The Ruin of Empires. And it's a trippy book. It's, um, it's nonfiction as a fantasy. The fantasy is a traveler is going through the Middle East, touring around, and a demon comes to him and shows him world history. And basically, at one point, picks him off the globe and kind of spins the globe behind him and drops him at different points. And he looks at the rise and fall of empires all over the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it's significant is uh, that this is probably the first European book to take Meso- or pre-Columbian American civilizations and African civilizations seriously. And puts them on a par with uh, Greece and Rome and, and with Egypt. 
but among other things, it's a gloomy book because all these civilizations it like rise. Stapledonian sort of. It really it? does. It has that feel, and like Stapledon, things or like Last and First Men, things end badly. All these civilizations rise and then fall. I mean, so these are <laughs> so these four books. The fifth one is what's in his pocket. Remember, he steals ah, he did, the notes, the lab notes, no. the lab notes, which has got to you imagine they include what an ugly beast. I hate him. Love dad. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, oh, but, yeah. oh. But, and then he gives it back. I mean, I, you just hyper programmed the monster into this monster, you know, and, and what's the book What's the book the family's reading. Because uh, they were, they were. Um, I mean, the, the family right. is endlessly interesting. They, they've got the, you know, they've got their sorrows. They've got their tragic history. They've got uh, a demon out in the woods or a spirit out in the woods who cut their wood for them. <laughs> like they don't seem to think that that's very odd. And which that's I, where he I learns about not only family life, but I remember he had a very poignant observation where he said they often seemed sad, and he couldn't see mm-hmm. why. He said they had yeah. food. They had each other. They had love. Right. He couldn't, you know, and I thought the, yeah, old man, the right. most basic level, those are all the human desires. And, and the thing he craves above all is love. Mm-hmm. No, and, and, then, and then safety comes. And that's the interesting, like, I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I guess I should have, but I didn't see that coming. What Her story is tied in with the, the story of the, of the tragedy of the family somehow, right? Yeah. But she, her father, is it her father was a Turkish merchant? Uh, Turkish merchant. Okay, so at the time, I guess we're still talking Ottoman Empire or something. So Turkish and Arabic are kind of mixed up, aren't they? Well, yes, and also it was kind of common for people to use uh, Turkey as a proxy for European society. Uh, okay. Samuel Johnson has a, a great book where he does this called The Rasselis. Um There's. Uh, Percy Shelley does this. The book they're reading is, is Ruins of Empires. It's only, um, ah, the book okay. from which, the book, this is you know, a romantic book. This is the book from which Felix instructed Safi was only Ruins of Empires. I should not have understood the import of this book had not Felix, in reading it, given very minute explanations. Thank goodness. Uh, so, so he can stay yeah, out so there and pick it up. He gets a picture of the entire world and how the, how the world is coming in a very Stapledonian sense, you know, coming and going and coming and going. Well, then he and then he he he, re, he summarizes it. He's, you know, uh, and their reactions. I heard of the slothful Asiatics, of the stupendous right. genius and mental activity of the Grecians, of the wars and wonderful virtue of the early Romans, of the subsequent degradation, the decline of that mighty empire, of chivalry, Christianity, and kings. I heard of the discovery of the American hemisphere and wept with Safi over the hapless fate of those original inhabitants. So again, this is kind of radical to be saying that. I mean, keep in mind that a few years earlier, um, you know, Haiti rose up in rebellion against Europe, you citing the rights of man and citizen the French Revolution had proclaimed, and the French Revolution then crushed it when this great, you know, um, you know, terrible, terrible story. These are, uh, you know, she's hanging out, uh, Shelley's hanging out with radicals, so it's no surprise that well, they might have sympathies I, for the underdog. Well, yes, and and you should, you see, it appears in this story, it's almost like a... God, I hate to be a historical be here, but it's almost like a voluntary or <laughs> involuntary simplicity story. These guys come from wealth and power, they're stripped away, and they're happy. I mean, it's it's in many ways mm-hmm. the opposite of, say, a Jane Austen novel, where the way mm-hmm. happiness is, among other things, advancing in class. Um, and here, they're they're fine. They've got their magical servant who cuts their wood, okay. Um, <laughs> to me... This, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I interrupted. Go ahead. 
No, I, I mean, it's, it's a really, they have one terrible flaw, which ends the story. But besides that, it's, it's a curious lesson to, to the time. It's very anti-American dream. I mean, you get the opposite of the American dream. You, you don't ascend, you lose, uh, mm-hmm. through bad luck and hard work. And it's okay. Uh, you, yeah, yeah, but also for, through virtue, because one of the reasons they right. fell as a family is because they stuck up for this uh, mm-hmm. Turkish uh, merchant who was being persecuted by the French government. So now think about, you know, this is coming three years after the fall of Napoleon. You know, we've had a generation where Europe, the whole continent, has been racked with revolution, with an attempt mm-hmm. to get rid of aristocrats and kings. Yeah. And Shelley's saying, yeah, and without them, you can you have a pretty good life. Even when the worst happens to you, if you remove those guys, you can have a pretty good life. Right, because I think one of the keys, or to me, (laughs) the main key would be a lot of it depends on your intention and how you try to carry that out. Because even if you fail, you're you're going to pick yourself back up, kind of as Jesse was arguing with young Frankenstein. You're going to try again to do the good thing, the right thing. And Frankenstein, when he, and I hope this is, in both books, I just assume, uh, I don't know, but he says, a new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy yeah. and excellent natures would owe their beings to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. So again, it's about his glory, his fame, his gratification, and praising him, there's no self-giving. There's no interest in the other person there. And so when, even when he's putting off his marriage to Elizabeth, it's because I'm pretty sure I'm going to get murdered that night. Not going to do it. And right. it, it's nothing, there's nothing about his feelings for Elizabeth. And so you look at this family and they are the epitome of sacrifice for each other, love and giving. And then um I also... And Brian here, you can probably correct me in a thousand ways, but very briefly, what I know about Mary Shelley is uh, from a couple of different sources that are probably incomplete. Uh, but, you know, she was around Lord Byron. Okay, now we're talking crazy and pretty self-absorbed. I don't know what her husband was like, but I do know that she they had an infant, I think a little girl, a baby who died, and she was really broken up over it. And whether or not this is true, what I gathered from it is that at least from her point of view, he didn't seem to care that much. And so she would have dreams about, you know, the baby all the time and that it was just cold and, oh, look, we warmed it up and it's awake and then she'd wake up. Kind of similar to her Frankenstein dream in a way. And um, so when she's talking about all these things, she's also we also have to take into account her own personal experience of the people around her. And these high ideals are great. But it comes down to, at the bottom, how are we living with each other? How are we treating each other? Because even at the very end where Walton's listening to the creature, who I would argue is horrifying, because after one look, Walton's like, I just looked at his shoulders. I didn't look higher. <laughs> right. Um, but he he is ready to be persuaded. Then he says, wait, I remember what Frankenstein told me. He's devilishly persuasive. And so everyone is listening to the charismatic Frankenstein who is so selfish and not giving any chance to the person who is pouring his true heart out to them. Um, I realize I kind of just kept going with that, but it's to me, that's the heart and soul of the whole thing. And, and I, okay, this is just hilarious to me. Um, as, as a side note is 
and again, Brian, you may know the true details, but what I've heard is that Shelley's husband wrote under the name Victor, but after Frankenstein came out, he stopped. And then <laughs> he also, he was writing Prometheus Bound, I think, at the time that she also wrote her story, Prometheus Unbound, and it came out the year after Frankenstein, although I think he was working on it then. So obviously they were talking about this a lot or thinking about it a lot because she'd been reading it. And I read just a very brief summary of it on Wikipedia, um, which said that basically at one point in the Prometheus myth, Jupiter falls from power and Prometheus is released. Yes. And so you kind of wonder how did what she wrote influence him in all those ways, too, and them as a married couple? Because then they had another baby that died. Oh, you've, you've really got to wonder. And um, I mean, if you haven't seen Ken Russell's Gothic, again, that's that's a, a key part of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fun movie. It's a crazy movie. It's a fun movie, too. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'm nodding. You can't see this on radio or on <laughs> podcast, but I'm nodding. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there's there's a lot we don't know about the private lives of these people because you know there's so little evidence and the evidence is biased. Um, and in fact, if you want to if you want to fast forward a bit, um, Mary Shelley has a, a book I think equally as great as this. It's ten times the size. It's called The Last Man. Oh, um, I've it's heard ten of times that. the size, really? Because I wanted to. I'm thinking about doing that book. But I've heard of I, that. I I, I really recommend it. It's, um, okay. it's a very, very powerful book, and it was largely forgotten until the 1980s. And it came back partly because of the rediscovery of Mary Shelley, and also partly because of AIDS, and people were interested in plagues. Last Man oh. is about plague that wipes out the human race. And uh, the first half of it is the slow part, just to tell you. I mean, the second half is, is, is pure action. But um, it takes place in the future, in the far-off year of 2100. And... Oh, all kinds of great things happen in the book. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's a very different book in part because it's, it's really polished. It's really mature. Um, but it's also deeply sad, not just because we kill off the human race. I mean, that's kind of bad, right? But, um, yeah. there, there's, it's the first half is a kind of proxy for her relationship with these different people in her life. Um, I mean, it's clear that some of these characters are Byron and Percy Shelley. Mm. And, and you get this, this delicate drama about all of them, and then they all die. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really sad. And maybe if, I mean, that's, that's from the hindsight of 10, 20 years later, but you, you know, it might be worth reading just to, to dive into mm. that. Um, Sounds Prometheus interesting. Prometheus, yeah. Un- Prometheus Unbound is, is, um, uh, a tremendous book and, or, I'm sorry, tremendous play. And it's not the kind of play you can perform. Right. It's called a it's closet drama. Yeah. yeah, you read it. I mean, when I was in grad school, I was dreaming about using a, a virtual world to build a version of the play. I just never had time. <laughs> um, but it's it's about the rebellion, and it's happy because the rebellion, ha- you know, Prometheus comes back and we overthrow the uh, bad order. Again, this so, is this is very, again. very interesting. Like Prometheus, to, shouldn't Prometheus, the original Prometheus, be our hero? Yeah. Because he he creates oh, yeah. us. Yeah. He he gives us everything we need. He's he's basically like he is like the he's he's the, our creator. He's 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 the kind of guy we should be saying, man, this guy's great. And he did all this great stuff for us and he was punished for it. And he cares so much. He accepts the punishment. He doesn't take right. fire back or, you know, not yeah. do what they and said. He is willing to forever. pay up. That's right. There's a there's a hilarious. All right. I'm overusing that word. I think there's a there's a there's an interesting Harlan Ellison <laughs> story. Where Prometheus and Jesus are alien gay lovers—that's pretty fun. <laughs> um, but 
but you know, both of them, you, know, you put them together, just, the idea is to come to the earth and and to improve humanity. That's the you know the gist of it. Trust uh, Harlan Ellison to do that, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. No, I I agree. I think I think I think you know this is. But but our if Prometheus in this book is is a jerk. If if it flawed. is. Deeply if it is, if it is the man uh, Frankenstein, it is. I I think it is, it but if it is, is. okay, well, we'll just <laughs> it is. Put an asterisk beside it, and then we'll explain. Brian said it is, so I, I okay. think it must be true. Right. <laughs> yes. See, she's on okay, my side. So, now. <laughs> yeah. So I got your back. Prometheus in this book is Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is an asshole. Basically, yep. he fucks up really badly. Um and he he doesn't redeem himself in the end. Man is pretty although although maybe he does and that's the framing story, right? Okay. No, that's on the ship. On, on, on the ship. What's his name? Walton. What's the name of the Walton? Walton. Walton. Right. Okay. Walton. Doesn't he say I'm going to turn back? Yeah, he says I'm going to be a nicer person. So so that so Frankenstein doesn't that's... redeem himself. But Walt no, redeems himself. He, right. he, there is redemption, is what I'm saying. Ah, okay. It's in the <laughs> there is, You know, like he doesn't... Basically, these two characters are parallel. Walton is is doing the mm-hmm. same thing that Frankenstein was doing. He's doing it... Unfortunately, he has to have a crew with him, whereas Frankenstein could be a loner when he was doing his stuff. And that that activity is dangerous. Right? It's dangerous to, uh, I guess... Uh, someone. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why he has to turn back his ship because it, those are all volunteers. They'll all die. If right. I, if I can channel uh, Eric Rabkin here and keep in mind, sure. as an undergrad, I took science fiction class with Eric or Red Frankenstein. So that really, Ooh. that class yeah. helped change my life. You have authority way. here. Well, I, I then TA the class when I was in grad school. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and um, and I wrote about my dissertation, which is actually I was rereading this morning. God, that, it wasn't as painful as I thought it would be. But, uh, <laughs> but the, but you know, you you got you have this Chinese box structure in the book, and we said on the outside we've got Walton writing these letters to his sister about his trip to the north, and Eric makes this case that he's trying to reach the North Pole, which at the time we didn't know much about, and you can compare this if you want to uh, *Rhyming the Ancient Mariner*, which is only a few years earlier. Well, mm, right, you earlier. have to. Which is, you know, going nice. to the, you know, the frozen pole. And then if you want, you can flash forward and look at Edgar Allan Poe's only novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym in Nantucket, where they go to the South Pole. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's great uh, At the Mounds of Madness. Uh, so you get this kind of extreme striving, you know, for the, to go beyond the horizon, to go to you know, where no one has ever been before. It's like Star Trek, right? To go where no man has ever been before. And, and, and the gendered language she really, really matters. So you've got that outside. Penetrating the unknown, right? But yep. he's longing for a true friend. Yes. And this actually was such a my dissertation, I'm afraid. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. But, I jumped um, again. No, no, no. Well, I, I was talking about doppelgangers. And, I mean, I'm fascinated by doubles. And so for mm-hmm. me, this is a great book about doubles because you've got doubles all the way down. You've got Victor and the monster, Victor and Walton. And, you know, this is why the monster kind of has to die at the end because doubles always cancel themselves out. So even oh. though Victor is gone, we've solved the problem. The monster still can't do anything. He can't join society. But second level is Victor's story. I'm sorry. Second level is Victor's story about what happened to him. Third level down is the monster's story. And the fourth level is is the family in the cottage. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's neat about the book is that it's perfectly symmetrical. 
that 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 sounds trivial, but actually a lot of gothic novels. Oh, that's a lot of beauty. I mean, that's when you start looking at wh- why wor- books work. I mean, the number of parallels is is a lot. We did we did the Prestige not that long ago, right? Uh huh. Uh-huh. And that is that's double, 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 double exactly. all the way down. Exactly, and the doubles all the way out. I mean, it's um, oh. but a lot of. A lot of, I agree, the symmetry of this is, is beautiful, and you can just really just trace these echoes back and forth. Astonishing for an 18-year-old to write this. But also, you get, uh-huh. um, uh, novels from the period try to do this, and some of lost control. So there's a great mad gothic called Melmoth Wanderer, which I, I'm very fond of. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. when Oscar Wilde, a century later, when Oscar Wilde gets out of prison and goes to the, uh, Europe to get away from Britain, he uses that as a pseudonym, Melmoth. Uh-huh. Um, there's actually a not bad graphic novel about that, just called Melmoth. But, um, but the but Melmoth has about twelve different levels like this: a tail, mm-hmm. then a tail, then a tail, and it doesn't hold up. It begins to collapse and fall apart. There's also there's also a, a great, really strange uh, Polish German Gothic called the Saragossa Manuscript that has mm-hmm. I've lost track. It, it's all about that, and it was turned into a movie, which is okay, which. Um, mm-hmm. um, a 60s movie, and it's uh, it's kind of trippy to read. But again, you know, I I go to this town, I talk to a stranger, a stranger tells me a story, and in the story, a character picks up a book, and here's a you know, he will tell you about the book. And in the book, someone has a story, and they tell you this. So you know, you've got all that back and forth, which in Frankenstein makes you want to zoom in on the cottage and figure out what left mm-hmm. there. The and heart of the story. It, it is. It really is. It's one that no one thinks about, and mm-hmm. it's it's weird right. because it's it's not. It's not a science fiction story, although you do have a science fiction character in it. Um, no, but it's what she's trying to say. Yeah. Well, and the uh, oh, maybe I'm jumping in. I'm sorry, but no, but I'm sure in all this you talked about the fire and ice, right? Because isn't that yep. the like I love it. it. He's going off. He's going to do all this exploration, and his ship is caught in the ice, and here they are. Because their relationship is what it is, and they are also caught in the ice and freezing. Oh, mm-hmm. and then the fire in the middle. I love it. Oh, mm-hmm. it's so good. Victor confronts the monster on a glacier. You know, and oh, the end yeah. of it is when this actually thaws out. I mean, they're actually yeah. able to leave. Uh, and also in that cottage, um, we are the monster. Because we are looking in through the little crack in the in the plaster or whatever it is. So the choice and is, family, well, how seeing the story. How will you, how will you look then? It's, mm-hmm. this, this is, this is, I mean, for me, I, I was skeptical of this, but I keep coming back to this as a reading, and it, it's really convincing to me now. There's this terrible word of lookism. I mean, it <laughs> describes, it describes a thing that we all know exists. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, I mean, social scientists keep establishing again and again, you know, that if someone who's conventionally attractive has all these advantages in everything from, you know, job applications and so on. And what's fascinating is what flips, and this is what movies get right, or at least what, uh, Young Frankenstein gets right, is Felix and Safi and all these guys, when they see the monster, mm-hmm. that's when they, it's this heartbreaking scene. Um, it you is. know, um, Agatha, who can describe their horror and consternation on beholding me? Agatha fainted <laughs> right off the bat, you know, <laughs> and Safi, unable to attend to her friend, rushed out of the cottage. Felix started forward and with supernatural force tore me from his father to whose knees I clung. Oh, oh, it's so sad. This giant monster to this old man. In a transport of fury, he dashed me to the ground. Which means, I mean, what a strong guy. He possessed of strength to do this. Adrenaline. Yeah. 
I could have torn him limb from limb as a lion rends the antelope, but my heart sunk within me as with bitter sickness, and I refrained. So there's kind of the ethical monster who says no to violence. I saw him on the point of repeating his blow. When overcome with pain and anguish, I quitted the, vill- the, hot- the cottage. And then this next chapter is just the bleakest of the whole book for me. This is when he's horribly depressed, and he concludes the chapter with child murder. Yeah. I mean, that. so mm-hmm. if you think lookism, I mean, this is what Victor does. Victor sees the monster, and it's at sight. He doesn't bother talking with him. He doesn't analyze the situation. It's the sight. So if we're looking into this cottage, literally looking in, Jesse, then that's mm-hmm. the ethical challenge of the book. Can we be like Walton at the end and decide, you know, not to, not to act badly? I mean, there's um, Blade Runner. One of the things I love uh, about the movie is very much tied in with Blade Runner, isn't it? But it ends with that question mark. I don't mean the mm-hmm. Hollywood crap version. I mean the the director's cut. It ends mm-hmm. with that decision making point, right? You guys all know the. The you know um, the two characters, the replicant and the putative hero, are in an elevator going down, and the replicant says, "What are you going to do with me? What is going to happen?" He says, "Shut up, I don't know." And the elevator door closes, and the credits roll. Mm-hmm. Scott has tossed this into your lap. It's your decision to make, and I think that's that's what happens when we look into that cottage. Is we have to decide, and that's not an easy decision to make. But notice the way the story is told. Also, is that. We're on Frankenstein's side until, until we realize how tortured the monster is, how tortured the creature has been. Yeah. And we don't fully sympathize with him, you know, going into a murderous rage and killing children and framing other people for their murders and, and even, it, he murdered, uh, Clairval. And I wanna, I wanna talk about Clairval at some point too. But, um, all those murders are, they're not justified, but they're explainable in that it's a child. It's a child having a tant- temper tantrum. But this child is incredibly strong. And, and his passion is unmediated by a parent saying, look, calm down. It's, it's going to be okay. Everybody loves you. <laughs> you know, go back to your room and have a cry. Yeah. There's nobody there to do that for, for the monster. So w- w- we, we do sympathize with, with the, with the monster, but only by getting it from his point of view. I think. Which is a sign of massive writing, you know? I agree. And even then, we can't excuse what he does. We can understand it, but it's not condonable, really, even though he has a child having a temper tantrum. You know? At the the end of the book, um, it's got that scene with, um, with the, with the, the monster crying over, over his creator. (laughs) And the creator being, you know, sort of unrepentant to the end. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, and the monster trying to repent and the, and I think it's the Walton saying, no, you can't or something like that. Um, the, he, the monster says, I'm going to go burn myself in a funeral pile. Uh, I was thinking, I, I was thinking, well, where are you going to get that wood? <laughs> You're in the Arctic. I thought and, he was going to take I, a sledge and break it up. Right, or something. Right, okay. Maybe. But, <coughs> yeah. So the final scene is not him killing himself. It's him on an ice floe flowing off into, you know, the Arctic. And that is not Paradise Lost. That's that's Dante's Inferno. Remember at right, the Right, where the last circle of hell is totally frozen. Is, and Satan is frozen totally in the frozen and Satan is frozen, standing mm-hmm. frozen in the ice. Mm-hmm. And he's not a he's not a figure only of of horror, but also one of pity. Right, because the total absence of love is being frozen. 
It's yeah, not burning in hell. It's it's that frozen feeling. Did you ever read Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell's parody of the? Oh, author? many times. Uh, it's yeah, and that's, it's Kurt Vonnegut in 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 that position, right? Yeah. Because he says, and so it goes, and so it goes. Yeah, mm. I had to read something to tell me who that was. I was like, who is this? They're making so much fun of. Oh no! I, same know. thing. I read almost twelve, and I got like a third of the jokes. But um, yeah, well, no, that, so we did a podcast on it. Oh yeah. Oh. I, oh no, maybe not. Maybe no. we just did a. Uh, we just talked about it on a podcast or something. I don't know. We did. Okay. The most. Uh, we've done podcast. reviews of it. it. It's well. It's well done somewhere on the site. I can't remember. If it's a it podcast. was my gateway into reading Dante. Really, which I've only read once, and I need to reread many times. <clears throat> but um, it was yeah because I read that two or three times, and I went, okay, this is it. I'm taking the plunge. And thanks to that, I not only was interested, but I could kind of follow it a little better too. Hey, Scott, did we lose you? Um, you did for a little bit, but you guys are doing great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can tell you, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the discussion. Um, this, okay. is, this is an amazing book. It's, yeah, uh, anything that I say will just interrupt you guys. <laughs> no, not true. No, no, no. I'm, I've learned a hell of a lot. Well, a lot of this is simply, I mean, I, I found re, every year I read this and I read, I find more stuff and I, I, it, I, I can't get enough of it. In fact, one of the weird things in my teaching career is that at the college level, the majority of students have read the book. Hmm. And it's in part because the book is, is more and more widely taught in high school. And I, I find that kind of exciting. Uh, I mean, in part, it's short, so it's always good to teach a short book in high school. But also because the reasons we talked about, it has all this appeal. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also it's a novel written by a woman, which is still an issue in in you know teach and forming curricula. Um, yeah, that's right. But to, <laughs> so to it go, passes, and it can do all those other things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to go back to that end, though, I I I think oh god, it's it's such a perfect ending. You know, you've got this long monologue from the monster, <laughs> and he sprang from the cabin window as he said this, upon the ice raft which lay close to the vessel. He was soon borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance. You know, just just really quick, bap, and mm. over. Makes you think maybe he's still out there, right, floating around. Oh, but, yeah. I thought that when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. But the thing is, is that, that funeral pyre, I, I don't think he's, uh, I think it's metaphorical. <laughs> I think it's metaphorical. Although the 1910 movie, um, Scott, you saw a little piece of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Julie didn't, but it's on archive.org. I'm glad you saw it. Um, it's, it's got the creation of the monster that, huh? that thanks Brian pointed that out that it exists, um, is, is a reversal, uh, a film reversal of a fire burning, right? Oh. So, so what they did was they had a monster and they let it, lit it on fire and then reversed the film so that the smoke and and uh, ash is all coming together and into the body of the monster. It's a Sweet. pretty clever special effect, but it's also pretty, uh, it fits with. I mean, it it's not electrical, right? It's it's more chemical, almost. Yes. Mm. Yes. Which is ironic if this, you know, Edison is behind this, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you, you know he's behind it because he's he's emblazoned his name and his logo <laughs> all over the goddamn thing. From the name of the movie all the way to the end credits, there is a uh, an E stamped in the top left-hand corner and an E stamped in the bottom right-hand corner. It's like, one all the way. it's like a PowerPoint presentation with a logo. On the- <laughs> now, here's an alternate history. Imagine Tesla making this movie. Wow. 
Well, you make me think of The Simpsons, where the one where Homer wants to be an inventor, and Marge says, well, at least Edison shut up about himself. Oh, that's where you're wrong, Marge. He was a shameless (laughs) self-promoter. That's true. It worked for him, too. He got all the credit. Yeah, yeah, he was very modern that way. Um. I uh, the, earlier this week I I was going through you know this is my Frankenstein week so that's what I was thinking about and I and I kept thinking and I kept thinking and I and I came up with the first a perfect summary for you know the front of a book you know how they always they always have the back d- desk jacket sort mm-hmm. of writing and I was thinking I need one that's shorter because it'll be 140 characters and the one I came up with was. Uh, Victor Frankenstein fucked with Mother Nature, comma, and she bore him a strong son. <laughs> it's a plot summary. It. I love that. That's really because it's got it's got everything right. He he's being mean and he's creating and and, and um, I mean I think that's that that is what's going on right. It it, it, it captures that oh, yeah hate of science. He went too far. It captures the hate of science, but also. You know, there's no love in, in, you know, he fucked with Mother Nature. But I don't think it's a hate of science. You keep saying that, and I think it's a cautionary tale of science. Well, it's, it's, it's kind it's of a cautionary a tale, tale of, of sort of obsession without regard to it's uh, the community. It's consequences and responsibility for the consequences, um, I think. The monster need, needn't, like, it was, it was, he was not regardful of his community, right? He didn't know. <laughs> not the monster, Frankenstein. Yeah, Frankenstein. He didn't know what, because the monster wasn't allowed to have community. Right. right? Couldn't, he couldn't gain what he wanted. Um, and, and that, that sort of the, the, it captures the simple sort of, Thing is that you know there are some things that manner was not meant to know. Well, sort of, or even the idea. I think because I think of Walton, we don't exactly know what he wants to discover, and um, and I I'm not saying I do or don't agree with this. I'm just saying it seems to me that what Mary Shelley is saying with Walton and everybody's um, going, we're freezing to death. There's no food left. We've turned back, etc. Is um, what's the point? Do you have well, a point says, to it, or are you just monkeying around with things, or do you have some point in mind? Because that would add to the mindfulness of what you're doing. What's your intention? He, you are trying to literally better. is literally doing science, right? That's what he says: is is we're going to discover the source of the of the pole of the magnetism. That's oh, okay, what we're got it. I'd forgotten they, that. At, at the time, at the time, they don't know that you know the Earth has got a, a hot core and that it's you know spinning activity. Like they think, if we go up there, we'll see it. But how far are you going to go? Are you going to endanger everyone while you're doing it? Or is yeah, there a better way to do it? Or are you just going to dash off and do it? Sort of dis- I guess that would be my argument in that case. I amend it. The, the, the core, it goes right back to the center of that heart of the book, right? Is that, is that it's not just loving your family. It's also loving your fellow being. Right. Is, is, and thinking of their, their, their situation, not just your own obsession and not, fucking people over to get to what you want, but also to say, you know, I do know what I want, but also let's have regard for other people. And um, if you make a mistake and that's allowable, this happens, own up, take responsibility, help fix it. Like I would like, argue that Frankenstein has many a chance. We can't argue with the fact that the creature is here now, but 
he is given very many wonderful from the heart reasons to change his behavior and he stubbornly refuses to take any responsibility or think of anyone but himself. And I would argue that Walton learns from his friend and from the monster or the creature's example, which is that he's like, okay, I really need to be more responsible about how I'm doing it. And that's I, why young Frankenstein is the ultimate cure for all of this. Right, right? And, and that's it's, not anti-science necessarily, but it is no, arguing for a responsible... It's a very subtle version of anti I mean, the, the, the anti-science is there if, if you only take it as a simple, you know, only one way to read the, the story. It's not just right. a feminist book. It's not just an uh, anti-science book. It's, it's a, a very subtle allegory that, you know... How do you that, live? How do you exactly. live? It's really an, it's a it's an ethics book or um, yeah. a science ethics. How do you do science fairly? Right. And this this is a huge theme in in science fiction ever since. Exactly. I mean, every mad scientist yeah. or not mad scientist. Well, just the fact that science could accomplish what science accomplished in this story is kind of pro science, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's why it's really appealing. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not. I mean, although it is a gothic novel, and you do have you know a guy with a scary name, Frankenstein. I mean, he's still really appealing in a lot of ways. You you meet him young. Um, I mean, he's an aristocrat. He's he's charming. I mean, you know, think of him as a in the U.S. Think of him as a Kennedy son, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he's 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 smart. I mean, and and he does these things. And and he's resourceful. I mean, he's able to pursue the monster, and that's that's non-trivial, right? You know, he's able to pursue him across Europe and into the, you know up in the ice. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that obsession is still there, right? Yeah. And obsession. I mean, this is a, a nice book to compare this with. Would be Moby Dick, uh, mm. which is you know the great American novel of obsession. Um, but also, you know, with Walton. I mean, um, there's a there's a wonderful Marxist Trinidadian critic named C.L.R. James, who <laughs> this is a great story. He was uh, in the U.S. Um, trying to um, build a Marxist movement in the U.S. Got arrested, was being deported back to Trinidad, and when he was in jail wrote this essay on Moby Dick and had people mimeo copies and give them to congressmen so he could get a pardon. Mm. I, I just love this story. And it's a great book. Um, Did it sure. work? No. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't think so. I no. mean, <laughs> but, when Congress is reading a dissertation on Moby Dick doesn't sound I know, like a, I know. a solution. It, it is, he's, 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 he's working with the wrong materials. He should have sent money. Right, that's right. That's right. Exactly. That would have worked perfectly. But, uh, but what I started... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to finish my thought. You know, it's, this idea of a ship is a microcosm of society, and one, mm. you know, one of the oh, great yeah. things Dick, is that it's a multinational crew. It's like the Enterprise, you know. You, mm. and that's unusual for uh, 19th century America um, to have um, a, a story like this, and it's positive. You've got Arabs, you have Southeast Asian people, and it's it's great. And the captain doesn't really organize it. The captain spends most of the time hiding. It's you know it's a pretty neat federation ship in a lot of ways. I smell read along. Oh, I'm just happy to do that. That's that's what, uh, that's what that sounds good. I read um, it out loud just right. But Julie was going to say something. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go for oh, it. I was just going to say um, a real life example, which may sound really odd. Of that whole concept is uh, my husband is reading Hitlerland right now, mm, and that. He's really enjoying it. It was a gift. Our daughters will go, Dad likes history, and then they'll give him these books that look interesting to them. So he winds up reading the most bizarre books, and he reads the whole thing, man. So um, he knows more about uh, Jesse Brown. Jesse Brown? Is that it? Um, John Brown. 
I'm, I don't know where. Sorry, Jesse. I was Jesse looking Brown, at your name. Jesse Brown is a podcaster. No, we Jesse James and John Brown and all these very Lafitte and all these people that they were like, this looks good. And he's like, oh, 900 pages. Thanks. But so Hitlerland <laughs> is basically contemporary accounts of people who went to Germany and encountered Hitler and all these various things back right after World War One and on. And so what you get is a very interesting look that is not tempered by, and here's what he did later, and here's what he was responsible for. They don't know. Right, because they've just met him, and all these people are, and it makes me think of Frankenstein in a way, where they're saying, they're all going, wow, and then I was in Bavaria, and there was this guy who, whoa, charismatic, a few crazy ideas, but my goodness. Too bad he'll never go anywhere. And, of course, it's Hitler. <laughs> and um, they talk about this one guy who his nickname was Putzi, Putzi or something. And he had been raised in America, but he'd gone back to live in Germany. And he and his family became very good friends to the point where Hitler would come over and the kids loved Uncle Dolph. And um, they were very much behind all his plans. The guy Putzi wound up writing the Sig Heil songs that they'd sing at the rallies because they were very much like the Harvard Yell songs, which he taught Hitler when they would just hang out around the house. And so it's this weird combination of events where, you know, Hitler's then thrown in jail for eight months, which is when he writes Mein Kampf. And the whole time, his charisma is just leaking out all over the place. And we were kind of talking about what made the national... A psyche ripe for this sort of thing and what may, you know, for these ideas. And this is when my husband's going, because I was like, ah, oh, that is so sad. He could have been a great, wonderful leader who contributed so much to the world. And my husband's like, yeah, you don't know if what was at the base of everything was a really noble, wonderful idea, but very much I'm thinking like Frankenstein, it went wrong in a terrible way and nobody stopped him. What's interesting about you know, charisma? Is that it's 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 just like beauty. It's not in the object. It's in you, in mm-hmm. seeing the object, right? So Hitler doesn't have charisma. It's that we see charisma in him. I don't know. Right? Everybody said this. Everybody just said. In fact, right. But we all, you know, like when you say, you know, oh, this is the face only a mother could love. That's right. The mother. Loves that baby's face, right? And in the case of Victor Frankenstein, doesn't love that baby's face. Um, but, you know, like when you talk about, uh, some object, some, uh, object of aesthetic beauty, we say what makes it beautiful is that it, does it actually have something in it? Cause a bear seeing Adolf Hitler isn't going to see the charisma. It's going to see dinner. But charisma, a bear doesn't understand charisma. Charisma is for human beings, and therefore, I hate to say it, but I think he was charismatic. He misused it. uh, Oh, I I agree, but I'm saying, you know, like, what made him so charismatic is that we, it's, it's, you see it in him. It's not that it's, it's not an, uh, an object that you can measure. It's an object that you can only measure in the, in the same way that it's a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No, I don't think so. Because in this case, a lot of the people who were writing this were people who were just visiting the country and then leaving and going, what a weirdo. But I only say that now that I'm away from him. He was strangely charismatic. I mean, I don't see it because I look at these old pictures of him and I know what he did. And also, I don't understand German. So when he's standing there 
yelling to the crowd, I don't get it. But I think at the time, and also as kind of what you're saying, Jesse, is their their national psyche was really ready in many ways for this because of the way they were treated after World War II, and the fact that you know they were kind of they were victims at the time, which everybody agrees on from the way the treaties were done, and you know it's too complex, and we don't care about that right now here really. But um, my point was just kind of that. There are real life parallels to this whole idea of Frankenstein, and that goes back to what Brian keeps saying is, why is this book still taught? Here's another reason. This is something we can all understand. We've all seen examples of this stuff. Before we finish up, I want to, I want to ask some questions about, uh, the Claire Val character, the, the youthful friend who doesn't go off to university, stays in, in his family business, and then is later on murdered, uh, by the monster, and then that, Murders almost blamed on Victor. He gets a, he gets out from under that accusation. What is the what is the function of Clairval in this story? Because he's sometimes left out of adaptations. He's sometimes increased in adaptations. But I'm not sure. Like I don't know how he fits into the puzzle exactly. Isn't he us kind of? He's kind of yeah. Like he's the moral philosopher, isn't he? The average yeah person. Yeah, I mean he's tempers his friend a bit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there is that, and he's he's also the um, the friend, and so we have the friend theme from the outer level of uh, mm-hmm. Walton wanting a friend, and there's also the the strong you know um, if you want I mean people do follow homoerotic reading this way, um, saying how intense and passionate their friendship is as compared to what we see of Victor and Elizabeth or Victor and the monster, uh, you know there's there's a little bit of hyperbole here. Uh, Nothing could alight my del- nothing could equal my delight at seeing Clairval. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Okay. I mean, I would have said you know, maybe seeing Elizabeth or you know something well, else, but it, wouldn't that be a, a literary convention at the time too, and kind of a romantic it, way of looking at that sort of thing? Well, that's sort of thing. that's how I that's how I read it. But that's one of the ways you can go in and say you know it's it's interesting that he you know again we get that male only universe of you know, Victor making life mm-hmm. a woman and you know making a male and his friend is a male and uh, um you know there's I don't know if she thought about it that deeply i mean i think she thought about it but well she was a, she was well, very very she, wasn't wasn't she, she, she made a lot of attention she was to at home writing while they went off and hiked in the mountains like yeah. Yeah, she was. She, they're, they're like, okay, so they're they're having this, you know, ghost story thing, and everybody agrees we're all going to write a ghost story. So they go off and write, and then the the weather changes, and suddenly it's clear again. And Percy and Byron say, "Hey, we're going hiking. See ya." Well, it's it's and also. And she's like, "Okay, I guess I'll keep writing my story." Don't forget that her mother is notorious at the time for being the founder of uh, you know one of the great lights of feminism. Feminism, you're right. And, and this destroyed her career. I mean, this was this was seen that you know what was worse, anarchism or feminism. I mean, they're both seen as nightmarish at the time, um, and subject to a tremendous amount of abuse. So she was thinking in terms of gender. I, I think in many ways, I mean, so there's the friendship component for Clairval, but also I think he's a foil. I mean, he's a nice guy. He's a decent person who is similar to Victor in social position, and mm-hmm. so he's you know imagine if Clairval was went to Victor's classes. You know, he's he's a nice guy. Um, and you, know, you think you think back to nineteen uh, thirties and forties horror movies, and there's always eh, this happens in the fifties too. There's um, you have mad characters, monster characters, and there's the nice looking hero who isn't that has no superpowers, but it's just a nice guy. You know, it's a, it's a it's a useful position to have in a horror story. Oh, I know. It's Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. 
right? <laughs> Shaun of the oh. Dead, Hot Fuzz, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you know that's it's them. He's the Nick Frost character, not good looking, but you know he's the. I, I haven't like, seen uh, World's End yet. I'm I'm waiting to see it. Um, mm. But yeah, maybe enjoyable. Maybe the maybe the one in Shaun of the Dead. Um, although he's here, in a, he's here, he is successful, unlike the character in Shaun of the Dead. Oh, uh, well, yeah, but you know what I mean. The buddy kind of, uh, and, and the yeah. foil of one person's either striving to be better or the other person's the example of how to be better. Well, maybe, maybe I want a hot fuzz, you know? Have you ever yeah. shot when it had to explode? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got I got one more one more. Um, you know Elizabeth when she's brought into the family, she is um she is a uh, a, a stranger from a, a fallen similar family who is wet nursed with a peasant family. She's brought in. She's called cousin, but she's raised as a sister. And and Henry, uh, it's not Henry. Uh, Victor says. Um, and when I saw her, I, I was told, you know, you're supposed to take care of her. And he says, and she was from that time, she was mine, like a pet or something. And, yeah. and then of course they, they get married and she, she seems like she, she doesn't have any, anything to say in the story. No. And the, the what's with that relationship that's so weird. I mean, it's cousin, it's, I mean, does it go, does, does it echo what's going on? Like, I was thinking about safety as, is that sort of the, is there a parallel going on there? A little bit, um, but this is, this is worse. You know, this is Victor, <laughs> we're seeing it from Victor's point of view. So he's not, mm-hmm. I mean, classic unreliable narrator, and he's not taking her seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't give her a lot of room. You have to wonder how many conversations they had, how many thoughts she shared, which he just doesn't bother reporting. Again, you know, yeah, this comes back to the, the gender-based reading of the book. Well, and he write, he, she even has to write to him and go, okay, because sometimes when people are raised together like we were, but maybe you don't want to marry me, what, can you tell me what's going on? Because I thought we were going to get married. Um, she's like, but I know that's what everybody expects. Maybe you don't feel that way. And I, th- at that point, I'm going, oh, poor Elizabeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a jerk <laughs> he is. So. <laughs> I think Never the game product movie. I think the Brunog movie tries to give her a bigger role, um, <laughs> tries to make her more equal. But I think I, th- I think again, uh, Young Frankenstein does it right, right? The Elizabeth character, is, I don't think she's a cousin or anything, but she's of equal social status. Is is eventually she's pawned off on the well, not pawned off. She 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 goes with the um, monster with the, with the monster, and that's a good match there. And, and, and he goes girl. with the peasant girl. Yeah. Right. She's awful in the beginning. Don't touch the hair. You know. That's right. <laughs> well, actually, I, I love, uh, I was going to share this because this is one of my favorite parts of the book. This is the, this is one of the ways that Elizabeth appears. And, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe this goes away to answering your question. This mm-hmm. is right after, um, Victor has made the monster. And, um, the first thing he does is take a nap. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's such a psychodrama. I mean, this is such a subterranean book. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I create, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, 
walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her, but as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I beheld the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. Ew. So, mm. ah, yeah. How could because I? A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. Right. I started from my sleep with horror. Okay, so that's sympathetic. I mean, he doesn't wake up, you know, happy and refreshed, right? You know, <laughs> he doesn't wake up erotically charged, right? You know, he wakes up horrified. That's good. That's good. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Uh, Jesse Scott or Scott Jesse? What do you think, Scott? Uh, go Jesse Scott. Really? You're the Is man. That what, I don't. Uh, I don't know. You're the main it's, man. Come on. All right. Um, Jesse Scott, Julie Bryan. Oh, okay. All right. All right. right? Okay. All right. Here we go.